You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Matthew chapter 24 and put a ribbon or a bookmark or your finger in Matthew 24 and also Luke 21. You're going to need a little bookmark there as well. And if you don't have a Bible back there on the little ledge there, there's some Bibles. So you can either grab one or just lift your hand and we'll get an elder to hand you one or a servant. And let's pray as we dig into the word. Lord, we're just so thankful that our God is the God whose words never come back void. And your promises are yes and amen. They're true and they'll come to pass. And Lord, I pray that as we just continue through the Olivet Discourse, you give us ears to hear, minds that can understand, brains that can comprehend. Lord, that we would be willing to put effort into understanding your words. And Lord, that much more than knowledge being given to us today, Lord, would you just just birth deep relationship with Jesus as we just continue on. And we love you, Lord. We're so glad to be in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in week chapter four of the Olivet Discourse. And it's, it all began when Jesus and the disciples who were in Jerusalem on Passion Week, it's about a day before Jesus would be betrayed to be crucified. And as they're there in the temple, the disciples are looking around, observing the beautiful buildings and all of the gold and shininess of it all. And their, their jaws have just dropped. And they tell Jesus, Lord, see what manner of buildings they are here. Incredible. And Jesus says, yeah, you know what? I'm telling you the truth. Not one of these stones around here is going to be left upon another. And as the disciples heard that, they were shocked. What do you mean? All this, all the temple is going to be destroyed. You know, I thought you were going to set your kingdom up, you know, in power and glory. And, and what's going on? It's going to be destroyed. And so this prompted three questions from the disciples. And hopefully you guys are getting a hang of it now by week four. These three questions are, uh, when will these things take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So those are the three questions that are asked that prompt two chapters worth of an answer in Matthew's gospel. And so as we look at, Jesus has already answered when the first thing will take place, the destruction of the temple. You know, he's answered that. We talked about that last week. And he's been doing a discussion on when he's going to be coming back. And we did a couple weeks study on how there are signs of the times that are taking place that show us when Jesus is coming back. And those signposts are getting bigger and broader and easier to see and more frequent. Jesus uses the term, they're birth pangs. Just like a woman starts out in a tiny, tiny little bit of labor, barely noticeable, and it all ends in a giant cataclysmic event of major labor pains and broken water and ambulances and sirens and you all know all of that stuff you know it's gonna it's gonna get bigger and greater and more intense these signs as as it gets nearer to labor day when jesus comes back to the earth and so he's also been letting us in on when the end of the age or the end of the world is going to take place and then it all kind of ties together and so as we studied the Olivet Discourse, we've been learning a little bit about eschatology or the study of end times, okay? Uh, the book of Revelation and the book of Matthew and the book of Daniel, all, all are very helpful in our studying of that. And uh, it reminds me of, as you, as you read Revelation and you study, and as we've been doing our study, it reminds me of what Annie Dillard said in her book, Holy the Firm. When she said that the most chief theological question of all time is, are you ready for it? What in the Sam Hill is going on here? (laughs) No. (laughs) 
Are you not wondering that in the last few weeks? What is going on in Matthew 24, Luke 21, the book of Revelation? I don't get it. And uh, I've just got done teaching. um, Actually, I haven't got done. I'm halfway through teaching the book of Revelation at the School of Ministry in Corvallis. And the book of Revelation, 22 chapters. I've been teaching it uh, in eight hours. And it's just been, it's a killer, man. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, it's, it's rough to get through the, one of the most difficult books to understand in such a short period of time. And most of the school of ministry students, as we've been studying the book of Revelation, that's been what they've been saying. What the Sam Hill is going on here? You know, most of them said, you know, I've been afraid to even read Revelation in my quiet time because the book scares me. And it doesn't have to scare us. We just have to be willing to dig in a little bit and be willing to roll up our shirt sleeves and do a little bit of studying. Now, the Olivet Discourse has Christ exhorting his disciples. Take note, if you're taking notes, he's been telling them to be careful, to be watchful, to be prayerful, and to be faithful because he could come at any second. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but in the last three or four weeks, man, as the weeks go on and as the day goes by, I'll just hear the Lord say, Rory, are you watching? Do you really believe what you've been teaching your church that I could come at any second? Are you watching? Rory, are you prayerful? Not only for yourself, but for your friends and family that they might miss out on my coming. Rory, are you continuing? You know, are you being faithful in the ministry that I've entrusted to you? And this is all exhortation that Jesus has given us in the Olivet Discourse. And so here we are in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. And actually, we're going to read verse 15 down to verse 22. It says, therefore, and this is what we studied last week in depth. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And so at this point in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus warns us again of the false Christs or the antichrists that are going to come. And that word anti just means in place of. All throughout history, there have been men coming, claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus says it's just one of the signs from the beginning. But as time goes on, that sign is going to get more intense and more frequent until finally there will be one major false Christ that we studied last week in depth, the Antichrist. Okay, so we've been constantly warned by Jesus, watch out for these false Christs. And he says, see, I've told you beforehand The fact that Jesus says, I've told you beforehand, hints to the repetition that happens in the church of you all being warned of false Christ. It's got to be happening from the pulpit. It's one of the pastor or the shepherd's job is to protect the sheep from the wolves. And so, you know, Jesus says, I've been telling you these things beforehand. Watch out for these false Christ's. Peter tells us, hey, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness and firm faith, being led away by the error of the wicked. 
You know, uh, I was told in uh, Bible or in school of ministry that repetition is the key to knowledge. And so as we've been doing four weeks of the Olivet Discourse, some of this is repetition for you guys. But you know what? You need the repetition. You need to have it continually drilled into your brain. You know what? You know who else needs it? Me. You know, I can study this almost every day and still not have it figured out. I've got to keep digging deep to get an understanding of these things. But I also remember when I was a, a freshman in high school, for some reason, my eighth grade teacher, my eighth grade science teacher thought it would be a great idea to recommend me for the college biology class that some freshmen were taking. I don't know what her deal was because I did not belong in that class. It was horrible. But one thing that my you know, genius teacher taught us was that if I'm constantly repeating these things in your notes, then you can bet it's going to be on the test. You can bet it's going to be on the test. And so Jesus constantly warning us before these things take place that false Christs are going to come on the scene. You guys, in the church today, it's on the test. You have to test everything according to the word of God. And then especially considering what Jesus is saying, when people are going to say, hey, look, Jesus is over there. Oh, hey, look, Jesus is over here. He's out there in the desert. You know, he's some crazy guy living in a Winnebago selling fireworks, you know, or he's over here and he's in the inner room over there off the side of the sanctuary. Hey, guys, Jesus is in there. And after the service, he's going to appear. Oh, you know, people are fainting all over the place. No, don't listen. Don't listen to them. On October 22nd, 1943, a Baptist minister named William Miller led 50,000 people in Missouri to sell their possessions and go sit up on a hill waiting for Jesus' second coming. He, he prophesied it would be October 22nd. Well, the night rolled on by and the sun came up in the morning and nothing happened. And since that day... October 22nd in Missouri has been called the day of great disappointment. You know, don't believe us if we tell you that he's coming on such and such a day in such and such a place. In the 1980s, a, a British newspaper said that Jesus would be coming on December 11th, 1985. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses are constantly putting out these types of prophecies about the Christ that never are fulfilled. Some of you have heard Jim Jones and remember Jim Jones who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus and Buddha and Lenin and the Father Divine and he organized his little cult to go down to Guyana in Jonestown and, uh, and they organized this large mass suicide. You guys remember David Koresh who proclaimed that he was the son of God, the Lamb. We all remember how David Koresh went out in a blaze of glory down there in Waco. You guys remember Marshall Applewood, who in a letter back in 1995 proclaimed himself, I, Jesus, am the Son of God. And then he went on to lead his Heaven's Gate cold in a large mass suicide, complete with purple tennis shoes and linen coverings over the face, so that they might meet uh, the Father behind the Hale-Bopp Comet. You know, you guys remember that back in 1995. We talked about Jesus de Miranda and how he proclaims that he is Jesus right now. Leads hundreds of people uh, throughout Latin America and, uh, and southern, and actually uh, even the southern states. Charles Manson claimed that he was uh, this, the, uh, the coming Christ. David Shaler was a British MI5 agent, James Bond, basically, that began to proclaim that he was the reincarnation of Christ. And man, if there's one guy that you'd follow into the, into the thick of it, it'd be James Bond. You know, come with me. I'm with you, James. I'm Jesus. Okay, James, hold on one second. Um, not sure where you're going with all of this, but uh, you're going to have to jump out of this helicopter by yourself, you know, uh, without a parachute. Uh, and so you notice that when these men proclaim to be Jesus, it gets really weird if it's not weird already. And most of the time ends up in some sort of crazy death and defleecing of the flock. And so Jesus tells us, you know, be warned because it's happening frequently that people are coming, say that, saying they're the Christ. And he's over here in the desert or he's down there in Guyana or he's over in Waco, you know. Uh, don't believe them. 
Why don't we believe them? Well, look in verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes over to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So the second coming will have all of the subtlety of a lightning storm. It won't be a hidden event in an inner room somewhere, but it's going to be a swift, powerful, awe and striking event that every eye will see. We're told from the scriptures. We're even told where it will be in the desert, where the, where the carcasses will be. And we'll see a little bit later where that will be, where the carcasses will be. And he goes on to say, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Okay, so picture this. Are you guys, you guys, you got to help me out. You got to use your imaginations of what's going to happen. The sun darkened. The moon not giving its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the son of man will appear in heaven and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, so we read that. Let's try our best to retain that. Let's look over in Luke's gospel, chapter 21, verse 25. And let's check out how how he words it as well. Verse 25, Luke 21. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Man, when you read the book of Revelation, you read of earthquakes like the world has never seen that will make entire islands disappear. In fact, we read that every island that is now will be no longer. So don't go buying real estate in Hawaii if I could just go ahead and, I mean, if anybody can, maybe you should, but you know, you might not want to. Uh, you know, mountains will be, will disappear and, and other mountains will be formed. The stars of the sky will fall. These cataclysmic events as, as the supernatural realm meets the natural realm, as God pours out his judgment on a Christ rejecting world. We're going to see things that the world has never seen, Jesus says, and never will see after that. And so it says that men's hearts, not just Jews' hearts, but all men's hearts, will, will fail them from fear of what's happening. In fact, Revelation chapter 6, just at the first part of the tribulation, you can flip there if you want, Revelation six fifteen. And I know you tough Prineville guys with your big jacked up trucks and your bows in the back that you're thinking, I won't be afraid. You know, I know you tough guys. I'm not afraid of nothing. Well, let's look who's afraid here in Revelation chapter six. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. So we see a few things in this little section that men want to die. They want to get out of this. Many of you have been in situations in your life where it'd be better. You know, you think it would be better to die than to continue on in the trial. Guys, this is the greatest trial the world has ever seen. And the kings and the commanders and the general and the men's men are saying, I'm going to go over here. I sure hope a rock falls on me and just ends it all. They're terrified. Notice something else about what this day is. It's a great day of wrath. 
coming from the lamb. Those who rejected Jesus, and as we're going to study later today, were disobedient to the gospel, will find themselves here. A very scary place. And as you read Revelation, there's some scary stuff there. And then in chapter 9 of Revelation, if I could be a little bit dramatic for you, these crazy little locust things come up out of the pit of hell onto the earth and are running around. They've got faces like men and hair like a woman and, you know, kind of a lion's like teeth. And they have a tail like a locust that if it stings you, it's the most excruciating thing you've ever. I mean, these are some crazy things. Demonic, you know, demonic at, at heart, you know. And as these men are, are fleeing from these little crazy demonic bugs, you know, this is what, they, what happens. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Men will think, you know what? It's better to just commit suicide and end this, this torture than to deal with the stings from these little locust demons. But you know what? God is so merciful, he won't let them die. Isn't that crazy that God is merciful even in a time of wrath? The easy way out for these guys is to say, ah, the pain, the suffering, the torment. I want to die now. And Jesus says, you know what? Maybe if you just have a little bit more time, you'll bow your knees to me as Christ. I don't want you to die right now. And so for a season, men will be walking around in their mutilation rather than dying for an eternity of torment. God's mercy seen right there. So men, they'll be terrified. They'll want to die. It would be better to die than to continue in, in this tribulation period. And then verse 27, then they will see, after this, they will see the Son of Man, Jesus, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So he will be coming with power and great glory in the clouds. Matthew's gospel tells us that when he comes, all of the earth will mourn. Now, I know that there's some of you here. It's your first time and half of what I'm saying is totally going over your head. Okay. Uh, that's okay. Let me try and help explain a little bit. What I feel from the scriptures is the basic outline of the end times. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Do your best, okay? So I believe the next event on God's prophetic time calendar, this is what I believe. You can test all things according to the scripture. It won't offend me. But I believe the next event is the rapture of the church. Or the catching up of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. The harpazo. The rapture. Where the church, Jesus' bride, will be caught up to meet him in the clouds for a seven year honeymoon type period. For lack of a better word. Some of you guys might not like that. But you know, it's just a picture. Uh, a honeymoon type period of awesome time with Jesus for seven years in heaven. Okay, So the rapture, I believe, is the next event on God's prophetic time, time piece. Okay. Then the next thing on the scene will be the antichrist and he's going to come. Daniel tells us revelation tells us Matthew 24 tells us he's going to come with his smooth speech that he has his Barack Obama and John F. Kennedy combined awesome, good looks, stunning features and a golden tongue. And he's going to make a covenant with these nations to bring peace in the Middle East. Everyone wants peace in the Middle East, right? Well, he's going to bring it and he's going to make a covenant between the Jews and the Muslims. And one of the things that's going to happen is the Jews are going to be able to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. And so for three and a half years, oh, it's going to seem so great with this guy. They won't call him Antichrist in case you're wondering. He'll have a much better name than that. But, you know, it's, oh, three and a half years. He seems like such a great guy. And, oh, the world is going in such a good direction besides all these hailstones and earthquakes and mountains disappearing and stones falling on people. You know, everything else politically seems pretty good with the Antichrist. And that happens for three and a half years. Okay. 
right at the midpoint of the tribulation at three and a half years is the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesies of. And we just read about it there in Matthew. Okay, the abomination of desolation, Matthew chapter 24, Daniel chapter 9, Revelation chapter 13, where Antichrist will set himself up in the temple, okay, and he's going to have all of the sacrifices stopped. Stop killing that cow, you know, and he's going to say, I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the Christ. And he's going to demand to be worshipped there halfway through the tribulation period. And most of the Jews are going to say, whoa, something's weird here. This isn't right. The others, the Antichrist is going to set up an economy where unless you worship him and receive your special meal ticket, you're not going to be able to buy, sell or trade unless you worship him. So that kind of leads to the beginning of more persecution for those who don't worship him. So the abomination of desolation Three and a half years into the tribulation, the Jews won't worship him. And so they flee to the wilderness and the, the enemy, the Antichrist, begins to persecute the Jews and the Christians for the next three and a half years. OK, so from the halfway point for three and a half years, uh, that's the great tribulation. So three and a half years or time, times and half a time, the words are used or 1,260 days until the end of that seven year tribulation period. At the end of that period, and we, we know to the day, the scriptures tell us the son of man, Jesus is going to come in the clouds with great glory and that's what we're reading about right now. We're at the end in Matthew. We're at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus comes in the clouds. And I do this to help you remember something. I got feet, Jesus says, okay? He's going to come down and he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. As he's coming down in the sky, the Antichrist has brought all of the armies in the world to Jerusalem to kill all the Jews, and they'll be gathered in the Valley of Armageddon. Have you ever heard of the Armageddon Valley or the Battle of Armageddon? That's what's taking place here. And as Jesus comes down, all of the armies are going to point their guns to try to kill Jesus. But Jesus is going to wipe them out with the sword of his mouth or his powerful words. And after he's done wiping them out, he's going to come and he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Okay. All right. Rapture. Antichrist, three and a half years, abomination of desolation. You got a half tank, right? Okay. Uh, great tribulation. And at seven years, second coming. Okay. So let's look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. We just read that when Jesus comes in his second coming, all of the earth is going to see him. And Israel, when they see him, they are going to mourn. Now, have any of you ever, you know, really thought you were right about something? Really? I mean, you defended it. And then you found out you were wrong. You remember that, you know, sock in the gut feeling that you got? You know, especially those of you married that, you know, your wife kind of holds it over your head for a little. Like, remember I told you so? You know, all that stuff. Okay, some people, when they say, see Jesus coming... They're going to mourn like, oh, bummer. My pride has totally been wounded. But then there's going to be some that are going to see him and realize I killed him. I killed him when he came the first time. And let's look at Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the morning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And so when the Jews see Jesus coming, 
they're going to see him and they're going to realize all that we'd been, all that our forefathers had been looking for came 2000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. But we rejected him. He wasn't the conquering general looking guy that we wanted. He was riding in on a little donkey, you know, and born in a manger. And, you know, he had no form or comeliness that we should, uh, in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't a good looking guy. So we crucified him and they're going to realize what have we done? We killed the one who actually came to die for us. And revelation tells us that Jesus will appear as a lamb that had been slain. He's going to bear the wounds that he bore for us for the rest of eternity And as he comes, while he's in his glory and there is splendor there, they're going to look on him and see what they've done. It's the same thing that we did by our sins. And they're going to mourn like one would mourn of his only son dying. Flip over two chapters to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. So we're in the Old Testament. Hopefully you're there. Haggai, Zechariah. Sorry, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are the last three books of the Old Testament there. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14 is a vivid picture of this day, the second coming. It says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth. So right when all of this is happening, here he comes and he fights against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley for the mountain valley shall be reach, shall reach to Ezai. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord, my God, will come and all the saints with you. And so he's saying, my Lord is coming. This is his second coming. And who's with them? All the saints. All the saints are with them. How did the saints get with them? I don't know. Hopefully you do by now, though. The rapture. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. One incredible thing that as Jesus comes down on the Mount of Olives and sets his feet there, do you remember that when Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples all sat there looking like this? Whoa. Those angels appeared and they said, why do you stand there looking? For in the same manner that he ascended, so is he going to descend. And as he comes and he puts those beautiful, awesome feet on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in half. And there will be a chasm running from east to west. And these living waters will flow up out of the ground going towards the Mediterranean Sea on the west. But just east of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, over a couple hills, is this region with the Dead Sea in it. It's the same region that Sodom and Gomorrah is in. And most archaeologists believe that when the Lord rained fire and brimstone down on this area, that that whole area has been desolate ever since. And the Dead Sea is sitting there just, you know, it's being fed by the Jordan, but it's not feeding out. So there's no life in it. And it's interesting there that the water in the Dead Sea is 
30 times more salty than the ocean. Okay? So when you go out into this stuff, you don't sink. You're buoyant. And so it's crazy. People will take out their newspaper and they'll just kind of shove off the land and they'll just kind of like go around. You can't sink. You don't want to get it in your eyes because it'll burn your eyes out of your head and don't shave your face the day before either because it does not feel good. We had one guy, I'll just share a little story. As he's there in the Dead Sea, he's trying to get himself to sink. And we were told, you know, don't get in your eyes, it'll burn in your eyes. He goes, hey, look, guys, even... (laughs) Hey, look, guys, even if I try singing, I go, you know, and he comes back up and he's like, I got it in my eyes. We're like, don't rub your eyes. I'm not rubbing my eyes. You're rubbing them, you know. So it's just this poison water. Although the mud there is very good for your skin. It's this poison water. Nothing lives there. There's no fishing. There's nothing that lives in this sea. It's just good for floating around on. But one day when Jesus comes back, he's going to make this spring just shoot out of the Mount of Olives and it's going to head right towards the Dead Sea and it's going to bring life that hasn't been there since before Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember when Lot chose to go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, that was the greenest, most beautiful area. That's why he chose to go that way. So this beautiful uh, uh, kind of revival, just a picture of what's happening for Israel in that day. An interesting thing, too, about that spring that's going to shoot out of the Mount of Olives is that recently a hotel went and and started doing surveying to build a hotel on the Mount of Olives. And they found that there's this giant fault line that goes through the Mount of Olives. And in and around and near the fault line is this giant spring just sitting down there. So they decided not to build this hotel there because it's this huge earthquake and flood risk. And uh, utter devastation to the hotel, no doubt. And so it's just interesting how archaeology and geology, and it all just points to God's words being true. Then verse 9 there in Zechariah 14, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Jeba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Daniel to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So after Jesus comes back, it's all fulfilled in what Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 says, that this seven-year tribulation period, it's for Israel and it's for Jerusalem, that they might come to know Jesus and that the times of refreshing and peace that he designed for them will finally come to pass. After Jesus comes, there will be a 1,000-year period called the millennial reign where Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem with his saints. So a very exciting time as the world has been restored to a pre-fall state. Let's just read verses 12 through 15. It says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. So all those people with the Antichrist, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall be dissolved in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve or the language also speaks of curling up. Their tongues shall curl up in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them and everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle, which will be in those camps. So shall the plague be. And then you can read the rest of the chapter on your own time because it just describes the awesome millennial reign. So that's a little bit what this second coming is going to be like. This battle is Jesus fights against those who are intending to hurt Israel. And then the final example I want to give you of the second coming or account is in Revelation 19 verse 11. So let's flip there. Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Chapter 19 verse 11, the end of the tribulation. 
says, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I believe that's us. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So if you picture the you know, Revelation uses the example of wines and a wine press and how you would trod those grapes and make the juice, that's what the battle is going to be on that day. That's the, the, what's going to come upon those who are against the Lord. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there you go. The Bible acknowledges tattooing. It's okay. Um, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured and with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So at the second coming, every eye will see him. Every eye will see him and the hearts will melt and he will bring judgment on those who've been coming against Israel. And so back in Luke chapter 21, so we've gotten some good pictures of what the second coming is. Uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When all of the birth pangs that we've been talking about begin to happen, look up, be waiting for Jesus's imminent return because he can come at any second and when he comes, you know, uh, verse 31 says he will send his angels during his second coming with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven uh, to another. And some people believe that's talking about the rapture there, a post tribulation rapture. Um, but I personally believe that it's saying he's going to gather them together from the farthest parts of heaven. He's going to gather the saints from heaven who are up there worshiping him and say, let's go. And they'll come down to the earth to be a part of his coming. Verse 29. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and look at all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things takes place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so this set of verses here are a bit of a complicated passage, especially with verse 32. And you might underline this generation. This generation will by no means pass away until all of this happens. The phrase this generation makes this section hard to understand. In fact, one of my favorite Bible teachers uh, calls this verse a big nuisance. <laughs> it's a big nuisance because I just can't wrap my brain around what it means. 
And so, you know, like a lot of it, many hope the Lord will come before you actually have to teach this verse. But here we are today and he hasn't come yet. Different commentators of the Bible say that this verse is the occasion of great concern for many. Or this is a saying of acknowledged difficulty. It's hard to be dogmatic when dealing with this verse. A scholar who's long since passed away named Jim Boyce said, the easy part of the Olivet Discourse is over. Now we come to the part that's given the most trouble to Bible students and commentators. So, that was all the easy part? (laughs) Great. He goes on to say something encouraging. I haven't the foggiest idea what this means. So that's encouraging to all of us. If you've been sitting there scratching your head thinking, I might go to a different church. You know, no, man, don't go, please. You know, we need you. But, uh, you know, we got to search the scripture, guys. We got to, you know, dig deep and try and figure out what all of this means. You know, we can't be bogged down on this issue. But at the same time, don't be afraid to get mud on your shoes. All right, let's roll up our sleeves and get into it. Now, the term this generation will will not pass away until these things take place. It's no difficulty to those who view that the whole Olivet Discourse is talking about 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And some, some smart guys believe that. And so obviously this generation is a very straightforward time frame when all of this will happen. But remember, as we've been studying, we've realized that there's a telescoping uh, lens of the text in Matthew chapter 24. You know, one second you're looking at 70 AD, then another second you're zooming way into the second coming that, that's a future event. You know, then you're pulling back out and you're pulling a little bit. You're looking at the rapture, you know, and, and um, so there's this telescoping lens that makes studying this chapter a little bit difficult. So some believe that it's talking about 70 AD here. Some people believe it's talking about the end of the world. And some people believe it's talking about Jesus's second coming. So once again, we go into this fig tree parable with, with humility. Now, if AD 70, his return and the end of the age, those three questions the disciples ask are all tackled in this chapter as they are, then this generation that Jesus talks about won't pass away until these things happen. But the generation that Jesus is talking to has passed away. They're all dead. And the end of the world hasn't come. And neither has Jesus' second coming. So what are we to do with all this? Just give up, burn your Bibles and go home. No, don't do that. Please. Well, we've got a few different options of what could be happening here. Option number one, taking notes. I know you are. Jesus got it wrong. All right. I was hoping somebody would say it. No, you know, Jesus is God. God is truth and he cannot be mistaken. My words won't pass away, you know, and so he's not mistaken. Option number two Generation could be translated race. This race will not pass away. One man wrote, this generation refers in Luke not to a set number of decades or to a people living at such and such a time, but to people who stubbornly turn their backs on on God's divine purpose, the Jews. So some say that this race is a reference to the Jewish people not passing away until Jesus comes back again. One man wrote, there's no nation on earth that's been persecuted to such an extent as the Jewish people or has to wander about in foreign parts of the world without a country of its own. Yet this nation still continues to exist as a nation and shows no signs of disappearing. So this race has continued. I remember reading once um, some studies of when, when uh, people are basically, when their countries are taken over, that about three generations this race will last until uh, it's bred out of them. 
through you know the the mixed marriages and such, and so that race will con- will discontinue after about three generations. And so it's a miracle that Israel is still a race, and now in 2010 is an actual nation. So it could be talking about race, but I don't believe it's referring to just the race of the Jews that won't pass away. Keep pressing on with me, you guys. This is this is meat, okay? This isn't your mama's milk. You know, this is a steak. So get your teeth sharp and just keep digging in with me. We won't be going much longer, but press in. The third option is that this generation is actually speaking of a future generation or that generation. The people who will be alive to see these predictions unfold are the people who won't pass away. And so let's just look at this section of the fig tree passage. Uh, Verse 29, look at the fig tree and all the trees. And Luke's the only guy who says all the trees, you know, look at the seasons. The other guy says, the other Matthew and Mark say, look at the fig tree. Now in scripture, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. Hosea chapter nine, verse 10, Luke chapter 13, Jeremiah 24. Remember Jesus cursing the fig tree after going in the temple. He was frustrated that just like Israel, the fig tree had an appearance of religion and life on the outside with the leaves, but had no fruit. And so he cursed the fig tree and it withered up and dried up from the roots. It's exactly what had been happening with Israel. But as Matthew says, the fig tree is going to come back to life. It will become tender and put forth leaves. It will bud. And I personally see this as a prophecy of Israel becoming a nation again. You know, 70 AD, the nation was destroyed. The race continued for almost 1900 years. But on May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation again. And God's prophecies for her can now continue. We're exciting to be living in in 2010 and to be on this end of Israel becoming a nation because we can see how all of this can unfold now. In 70 AD, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, it's as if God's prophetic timepiece stopped. And then for, you know, 1800, 1900 years, May 14, 1948, it started again. And we're seeing these events unfold in an incredible way. Let's look at verse uh, 31. So also when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus, Matthew says, he says, it's near. He's at the doors. That's how near Jesus is. He's at the doors, like a paratrooper getting ready to jump out of a plane. Jesus is up there. Give me the green light. Give me the green light. I'm ready to go and get my bride. Catch him up into the sky. I'm ready to to fulfill these prophecies. And so this generation will not pass away until these things take place. I personally believe This generation is speaking of the generation that saw Israel become a nation again in 1948. Was anybody here in 1948? Does anybody remember that, that when Israel became a nation? You know, not so much the remembrance, but you guys were there. Uh, What an incredible time of prophecy being fulfilled. But um, I personally believe that uh, when Israel became a nation, the fig tree blossomed And that that generation who was alive to see that won't pass away until Jesus raptures the church. That's my personal belief. And uh, only time will tell, right? You know, if I'm like 100 years old and that generation has passed away, then my interpretation of that was wrong. And I'll humbly admit that. But right now, what an exciting time to say, you know, I actually think it's my, my parents' generation. So I'm just like, all right, this is exciting. You know, this, it could be at the doors, you know, he's coming soon and we don't know when exactly, but we have the signs to show us. So a very exciting season. How tragic would it be to live all this time and to get to be the one group of people here when Jesus comes for his church and to miss out on that, you know? The one time in history when Jesus raptures the church and you were the foolish servant who said, my master delays his coming. I don't need to live for Jesus. 
How sad would that be? Man, I want to be the faithful servant that's like, all right, Lord, come. I know you're coming soon and I'm going to live for you with all that I have. And so we'll just wrap up today. Verse 34, but take heed to yourselves. And I underlined in my Bible and put Rory. Take heed to yourself, Rory. Quit preaching at the rest of the church when you got to deal with yourself. Lest your heart be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on the whole or on those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. You know, watch, be ready. Don't let the world suck you in with her lure, with the, with the drunkenness and the buzzes that are out there and the rushes and the cares and the covetousness. Don't let her suck you in because the day that Jesus come, it'll be like getting your foot stuck in a trap. You know, it'll surprise you. It'll shock you because you weren't watching. Verse 36, watch, underline that word, watch. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Do I believe that Jesus is going to come and rescue his bride from the biggest time of trial that the world has ever seen or ever will? I believe that. And I believe he tells us that if we watch and we're living holy lives, if we're holding on to Jesus, and if if we're found in Christ, that we'll escape this great day of wrath that we've been talking about. I also look at Revelation chapter 3 verse 10, where Jesus tells the faithful church in, uh, he tells the faithful church Philadelphia, To persevere and I'll keep you out of this trial. Persevere. It's interesting that the outline of Revelation points to a pre-tribulation rapture. You know, you look at um, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. There's seven letters to churches. You know how many times the word church is mentioned? 19 times. Church, 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 okay, so 19 times in chapters two and three of Revelation, chapter four, verse one, John says, after these things, the church age, I heard a voice that said, come up here, and immediately I was in heaven, I think that's a picture of the rapture, after the church age, immediately the rapture will happen. And then we'll spend this awesome time with him. You know how how chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation period, how many times the word church is used? Zero. I believe that if we are in Christ, that we'll be saved from the wrath to come. Romans chapter 5 tells us he saves us from the wrath through the blood which he shed. God has not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that is where we will close today. I know my audience when they've had their cup filled, you know, their tank is full for a week to go home and chew on all of that for a little bit. But as we close, why don't you just close your eyes and and just bow your head. And let me read this verse to you. If you're here today, And you don't know Jesus in a personal, relational way. If you've never accepted him into your life as your Lord and your Savior, if you've never let his blood, you know, wash over you in the spirit and cleanse you of your sins, I want you to listen to this verse. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And today I just ask you to search yourself. Do you know God? And more importantly, does God know you? Does he have you? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Today it can be. If you'll just bow the knee of your heart to him. You'll be saved from the wrath to come. Both on this earth and a future of hell. But if today you're disobedient to him, to his gospel, you're heaping up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath, and you'll experience the things that we talked about. He's coming soon, and I plead with you not to set him aside, not to push him off, but today set him up in the throne of your heart and make him your Lord, make him your everything and surrender to him. And if that's you today, just as the worship team is coming up, if that's you today and you want to escape these things, today you can pray like Jesus was saying. You can pray and receive Jesus into your life and you can be found worthy to escape these things. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he did for you. When he took your place on the cross, shedding his innocent blood that you could be forgiven. And if that's you today, and you don't want to be an enemy of God, you don't want to experience his wrath that will strike fear upon all the hearts of men. Today, I plead with you to receive Jesus, to lift up your hand where you're at and say, Rory, will you pray for me? Right now, I'm an enemy of God, but I don't want to be. I want to be at peace with God. I want to go to heaven, not hell. I want to be spared from the day of wrath and instead enjoy the day of honeymoon, of party in heaven. And if that's you today, I just plead with you to respond to Jesus. Because every time that you hear him knocking on the door of your heart and you reject him, it gets easier to reject him the next time and it gets easier to reject him the next time until so soon you have no care in your heart. Don't put it off. He could come today. Just lift up your hand and I'll pray for you. Receive him into your life and be saved. doubting this morning don't doubt anymore you can know today that you're saved if you're thinking right now in your mind I'm okay, I'm good I don't need to respond to the Lord today I'm a good person I'm a good person, I've never murdered anybody I've never cheated on my wife never cheated on my taxes when you know deep down you are a lustful covetous wicked immoral individual in your heart and you are in desperate need of a savior don't be deceived neither fornicator nor idolater nor adulterer nor wicked, nor covetous, nor homosexual, nor sodomite will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Don't you be deceived. 
you need a savior. And he's here today and he's pleading with you that you'll humble yourself and receive him. If that's you, lift your hand up. It takes humility. It takes boldness. How bold was Jesus when he died on the cross for your sins? Be bold like he is. For you Christians, as we study, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And may this knowledge just push you towards loving Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, since you know what's going to happen in the end times, it says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men be reconciled to God. The day of the Lord is a terrible day. May the Lord empower you to be a bold witness. Paul also says there, no longer do we regard men according to the flesh, but we see their souls. And Lord, I just pray today you'd help us to see past people's appearance or their clothing or their demeanor, their faces. But Lord, we would see souls that are so valuable to you. And the cry of our hearts this morning is come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's stand and close with a song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.